You are listening to the golden age of aviation with Breitling, chronicling and celebrating all that was best about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. This was an era powered by the advances of the jet age, then later inspired by the advent of supersonic travel that saw civil aviation soar to new heights of efficiency, luxury and romance. This programme tells all those stories, from technological developments and engineering innovators to those fearless individuals in boardrooms and cockpits who literally and metaphorically defined a new era of travel, and those storied brands that embodied the very essence of the golden age. We'll hear from the people who know the history, the personalities and the legends better than anyone else. We'll bring you unprecedented access as we meet those that flew and were flown, visit the airframe makers who helped to make the globe smaller and sit down to talk with the designers and marketers that sold the world the dream. This is the Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling and I'm Chloe Potter. We start today's show in the 60s, when this era of aviation was in full swing. The technological and cultural aspirations of flying were no better reflected than in the campaign led by now-defunct American airline Braniff. In 1965, they launched End of the Plane Plane, a vivid and playful makeover of the airline that saw their aeroplanes painted bright colours and a series of uniforms implemented for their aircrew, designed by the Italian fashion designer Emilio Pucci. The campaign was dreamed up by the notorious ad executive Mary Wells, who came up with the idea of the Air Strip, an outfit for the air hostesses to wear that they could strip off layer by layer throughout the flight to reveal a new costume each time. There was even a TV commercial about it. Braniff International Hostess meets you on the airplane. She'll be dressed like this. Pucci was known for his forward-thinking technicolour designs that didn't just light up the catwalk, but also changed fashion everywhere, from the ski chalet to space. And as a well-travelled former pilot who embodied the very idea of the jet-set age, he was the perfect person to design Braniff's uniforms for the relaunch. The overall look of these iconic outfits sat somewhere between contemporary 1960s and space age, with shift dresses teamed up with plastic dome-shaped rain helmets. They're certainly worth googling if you haven't seen them before. To find out more about Emilio Pucci's relationship with Braniff, we caught up with his daughter, Lodomia Pucci, who is deputy chairman and image director of the Fashion House. When she brings you your dinner, she'll be dressed this way. There is a sentence I like a lot about my father's work, and, and I think it's quite precise, and I'd like to quote it. And it's before stylist, before the look, before Pret-a-Porter and before the jet set, even jetted, there was Emilio Pucci. And I like this sentence because my father was a pilot actually before being a designer. And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today has a lot to do with his experience as a pilot. And then of course as a designer. So if that brings us in to the designs he made, what, what I think really 
made the whole thing so incredible was his collaboration with Mary Wells. Mary Wells was a friend of my father's through the 60s and 70s. I remember growing up seeing a lot of her and her family. So they were obviously very, very close to my father and very close. And I think that the mixture between her creativity and my father's creativity really brought this vision to reality. And if I understand correctly, she wanted to paint the planes and do a whole new way of approaching the, the, the airway business and the planes. And I think, you know, that, that's really the, the big picture of it, conceiving the airstrip was really the idea of giving a new way of looking from north to the south, as we know that the different destinations were from colder parts of America to warmer parts also in South America. And I personally also remember as a child my father laughing because one day there was a little vignette, I don't know which newspaper, that you could see the models on the top of the stairs in bikinis and everybody trying to queue to get on the plane and they were saying look what they do to get people on the planes now so I think this idea of airstrip was quite amusing but it was really a good idea of getting on the plane and being covered and then as you go down you know you get a lighter weight and that again is a lot about my father's way of conceiving fashion easy way to travel lightweight garments etc and it all was applied to the crew this whole period that we're talking about, it was so it was so forward thinking in so many ways. The new technology that was coming in, I mean, obviously he has a connection to planes already, but do you think that whole connection to this opening up the world and all this new developments in air travel was really attractive to your father for why he wanted to work on this project? Because, I mean, I know that he's he's had designs that have gone up into space, so this whole area must have been fascinating to him. Well, I think, you know, I think for him, travel was a second nature and traveling by plane probably too. So as he was a man who was, you know, had a very strong sense of aesthetic, for him to bring his aesthetic, his modernity, his freshness, his service and the glamour to a place that he considered probably glamourless was great, you know, and I think he totally went with it. And, you know, in his first collection, when he does those changes of eight solid colours, you know, you would expect Pucci printed all over the place, and actually it's not, it's solid colours. And it's colours that work in the territories where he's flying, you know, if it's warmer colours or colder colours, again, depending on, on where you are. And then it was reversible, the turtleneck, and what I think is totally his sense of humour, I mean... If one would have known my father's the bubble space helmet that, as you say, it's extremely futuristic for those days. Of course, everybody was talking about the moon and he was very excited by that. And as you probably know, he designed the Apollo 15 logo too. So he, he was definitely in that story. But the idea that, you know, women had to be beautifully coiffed and their hair done properly, and the only way to keep it was to put the, the bubble on top of it, the space helmet, was absolutely genius. Of course, practical, probably not. In fact, they fall to bits after a while and they didn't know how to stock them. But the idea was totally in that futuristic trip of those years. And I think it was, again, you know, the extraordinary moments of America being so strong, of a positivity, of the strength of the 60s, women's liberation, all those things coming together, yeah. Yeah, those, the kind of rain dome helmets, uh, they're incredible. I don't think you'd see anything like that on an airline these days. But do, how do you think his designs for Braniff influenced what other airlines were doing with their uniforms? 
It's very revolutionary. It takes a while for it to happen and to be understood. As we know, after my father, Braniff worked with Holston. Um, my father after worked also with Qantas Airways in, in Australia. And then I think Saint Laurent did. So what I think, you know, it was a kind of becoming a brand extension somewhat, and it has remained in some cases in the service, hospitality, travel, etc. But I think that his vision, as you rightly pointed out, was much more ahead, much more technologically oriented, rather than just embellishment. You know, today everything has got so much more casual that it looks a little bit out of sync when you're traveling today on planes. The uniforms are a little bit on the older side, while what he did was, you know, give it a whole new wow effect. And as you say, it was a whole new dimension of traveling, of music. I mean, all these things before the war hardly existed. And we're not talking, of course, with a democratic approach, but with an elite approach of those 60s, you know, as we said, the jet set and all that. And people were trying to look amazing and unique, but it was a very small group of people you were actually speaking to. As we know, in the 90s, and then in the 2000s, all this became much more democratic. So it's very, very difficult, you know, to imagine what it would have been like today. I wondered if there was a particular piece from this collaboration with Braniff that you particularly loved or that particularly sticks out in your mind. Personally, I'm talking very personally, but I think that's important too. It was uh, very important to have these different solid colours, and I think that was a big statement coming from him. I definitely believe that the um, space helmet was incredible. I think another thing that was quite amusing, my father loved nicknames and uh, he called Puccine a kind of apron dress uh, to serve the meal. So, you know, also this fact that it was functional, I think is very him and in a way clever. I think, I think that he really, really, really enjoyed it. And that's what I really would like to keep in mind with all this. and that. Besides making the people look good, he made them feel comfortable. And personally, in these years, I've been a bit on Instagram recently, in the past few years, and from time to time I get notes or images or pictures by stewardess of children of stewardess or hostesses that say, you know, um, my father or my mother just gave me the uniforms and. Um, with which they flew in those days and it's the most precious thing they had or we, you know, it, it's memories that come from the people and I think that's probably the best thing that I have from this, from this collaboration of my father's, yeah. The airstrip is brought to you by Braniff International who believes that even an airline hostess should look like a girl. It wasn't just the cabin crew who dressed differently in the early days of commercial flight. It was regarded as good form for every boarding passenger to dress in their freshly pressed shirts and blouses, suits and dresses. Flying was the experience and not just the mode of transport to your destination. Dr Janet R. Daly-Bednarik, aviation historian at the University of Dayton, Ohio, explains how dressing for travel has changed since then. At that time, flying was still a fairly elite activity. They were beginning to broaden the passenger base, but it was still fairly expensive to fly. 
So if you were flying, particularly in the 1950s and 1960s, you were generally affluent, middle class or above. You were also largely male. Most passengers were male businessmen at that time. It was still kind of an elite activity. Generally speaking, at least here in the United States, through the 50s and 60s, people still dressed to do most things. People dressed up to go shopping. People dressed up to go to church. People dressed up generally more than they do today. It was kind of a more formal time. But certainly people did dress to fly. Those businessmen, for example, they were flying for business. And if it was proper to dress for your business environment, then essentially flying was still part of that environment. And so they wore suits and ties. Women wore dresses. The way they dressed for work is the way they dressed to fly. Well, it begins to change when it changes in society, when kind of the youth revolution takes over and women begin wearing slacks and pants, which were absolutely unheard of before, say, the mid-1960s or so. Everyone began wearing jeans. So as societal norms changed, as people began to dress more casually when they were doing things in public, like going shopping, for example, then that transitioned as flying began to open up to more people, and particularly after deregulation in the 1970s, as people were dressing more casually elsewhere, they also were dressing more casually to fly. Flying was also kind of less comfortable as it became something of a mass experience. And so dressing for comfort became more important than kind of dressing to match kind of the status of flying. The idea of getting on an aeroplane being an event itself rather than a means of getting from A to B is largely why so many people consider this era golden. As ticket prices were regulated by the government, airlines couldn't compete on price and therefore had to pay close attention to their onboard service, as airline hotel and travel industry analyst Henry Harvelt tells us. But I think what's really interesting when we look at the 1960s and early 1970s, Airlines, because they were regulated, were also very heavily focused on marketing and image. They couldn't compete to the full extent on price and schedule. So that really forced them to compete on this, what we would now call the soft product, comfort, uh, cabin service, amenities, and so on. And because the airlines were regulated, they were less focused on costs. They, you know, the government's basically ensured that airlines had a decent chance to be profitable. You had a lot of focus on meal service and in-flight movies and leg room and things like that, fold down center seats and economy on narrow body airplanes because the airlines weren't competing as free market businesses. So it was really comfortable, it was really posh, even in economy, but it was a bubble. So how did that change the way that cabin crew worked during the golden era? They were certainly one of the most glamorized symbols, but was that reflected in the work? Well, today we're going to meet a couple of former flight attendants, starting with Brenda Tucker, who worked for Air Canada. She tells us about her experiences. In 
1972, it was the January, Mr Grant came over from Montreal and he interviewed me to be an air hostess or an air stewardess as they called them then. And um, I'll never forget the feeling when Mr Grant asked me to get up and walk around. I've never lost that feeling, but I got the job. But what was that like, knowing that that was part of how you got the job, was how you looked? It's the era. You accept it or you don't accept it and you use it to your own goal. And I suppose the women who were these air stewardesses, air hostesses during this period, they're so glamorised. Did it feel like a glamorous job when you were doing it? Initially, it was because I'd been with Air Canada before. I'd had um, the free tickets uh, for a couple of years prior to that. And um, it was like that. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was customer service. And that's what I'm going to dwell on, really. It was glamorised and the passengers were cosseted. And I suppose during that period, there was such a focus on service because ticket prices were all regulated Mm. and airlines couldn't compete in that way. So they had to compete on service. How did that affect the way that your job worked? Do you think that service was better back then than it is now? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, when when I started, I had a lounge hostess position. I, I They chose me with my French accent, I think, to do the inaugural um, Montreal to Paris run. I had a lounge hostess outfit, picture of which I bought there. And um, it was silver service in first class. And we invite, I invited the passengers um, up to the lounge. It was not a disco lounge. It was a music lounge where I introduced passengers to each other, all in French. And um, it was a plum job, a plum assignment. And uh, silver service was downstairs and the trolley was wheeled, two passengers in their wide seats and invited to make a selection of hors d'oeuvre, main course, etc. It was a delight. And so who were these passengers that you were serving? Were there any big names or any memorable people that you remember being on planes? Yes. I had to escort Donald Pleasance. I was chosen because I was English. And, and believe me, he was just like his characters on the television or on films. Um, reticent, <laughs> uncommunicative um, and had a persona. I mean, you know, th- there was barely a word that came out of his mouth, but I did look after him. Yes. <laughs> now, you've brought these photographs in, or all sorts of things in. The thing that I wanted to t- look at first was you were actually, for a while, the face of Air Canada. There's a, a leaflet here. Uh, how did you end up on the front of these brochures? This is a brochure for Fares to Canada and USA for Air Canada. Well, you can see by the uniform, that was the second uniform. And it's when I actually came back after flying. And it was in the city ticket office and I was a ticketing agent. I think PR quite liked me. I think it was the smile probably. <laughs> it is a, a very dazzling smile. I think I would buy a ticket off you if I saw this. <laughs> and the, and the, speaking of the uniforms, you've got a few more pictures here and you were talking to me off mic about how they change so quickly. Maybe you could talk us through a few of the things that you had to wear and how it changed. Well, when we started, it was the mini um, red or blue dress with a white collar, obviously in this polyester type material, um, with a mat- matching dress coat as well, but white gloves too. As you can see in that picture, that was the um, heavy overcoat for Canada. And that lasted about a year until 
the air hostess profile changed and our job description became flight attendant. Hence the change in uniform to trousers and the whole job changed. In what way? Well, as an air hostess, we had time. We were flying the propellers. For example, it took three hours to fly from Montreal to New York. And, you know, we created relationships with the passengers. It was, it was a wonderful job. We um, were considered the back-end crew with the front-end crew. And, uh, for example, when we did illegal layovers in Quebec City... The front-end crew relied on us or we were help, helping them find the runway at night. Um, we had to um, look for the lights and you can imagine the winter in Montreal and Quebec was quite severe. And uh, we were up at about midnight behind them, standing in the cockpit. There's the runway and they veered over to that side. Success, we found it. (laughs) And that's what they called illegal layovers because we were up again at six in the morning to take the flight back. And what were the main routes that you were doing? Well, initially, seniority didn't allow me to take on, um, you know, the plum routes like um, L.A., and um, Vancouver and transatlantic. So I initially on the propellers did the eastern townships, dotting up and down um, between uh, Montreal and Halifax, Nova Scotia, which included Quebec, Fredericton, New Brunswick, um, St. John, um, perhaps Charlottetown, PEI, Prince Edward Island. And it was exciting in itself. We personally used the radio ahead for our lobsters from Fredericton (laughs) and had them delivered, fresh lobsters, delivered to the aircraft. That was the captain that initiated that. That was one memory. (laughs) And what do you miss about those days of flying? Well... It's not that I miss them particularly. Um, I think I've shelved them in a compartment now that you have given me the opportunity to get out. Thank you very much. And um, I do dine out on stories that, um, you know, about anecdotes from that era, not particularly to do with the flying, but meeting the Everly brothers, checking in in a London, Ontario hotel. And they weren't very tall, actually. (laughs) I remember that, but that's about it. (laughs) That era has such a reputation of quite sort of exciting and scandalous stories. You know, people, they go off on their plane and they have layovers in places and wild affairs and things. Was it a bit like that? Or do you think people have kind of romanticised it a bit? Um, Yes, there was an undercurrent. But it wasn't overwhelming. I mean, I remember reading the book, was it Coffee, Tea or Me? And smiling and smirking and thinking, gosh, you know, was it really like that? I was part of that, was I? Betty Jo Elliott Pryor was a flight attendant for 40 years, flying with Continental Airlines, once one of the largest commercial carriers in the United States during its rich 64-year history. Her career also included flying soldiers in and out of Vietnam during the war. She speaks to Monocle's Will Kitchens about a career in the air. When I began my flying career, I'd always wanted to be an air hostess. 
and uh, had the opportunity to apply with several airlines out of California. Uh, my first love was Pan Am, and I took uh, Spanish and French course uh, languages to be able to pass uh, the language test, I guess, by them, uh, but I didn't quite make it. But fortunately, Continental um, hired me and put me in their class uh, right away. And so that began in May of 1968. The training back then was quite glamorous. We all had to have the same hairdo, the same makeup. Well, we had to have good figures. <laughs> And uh, uh, we also wore hat, and gloves, and a string of pearls. And we uh, loved being uh, the air hostess of the sky. Uh, we had uh, wonderful service. And the meal choices in first class, uh, we would even cut a Chateaubriand in the aisle. Uh, but it was a five-course meal. Uh, it was very, very nice service. And we served wonderful wines in those days and we enjoyed the time with our passengers. So really, we gave our passengers an experience, not like today where you're getting from one point to another and having to pay for everything, your meals included. Uh, so those days were, were very, very nice. It was a glamorous air, and uh, we've always had movie uh, actors on, uh, on our flights. And um, I've had John Denver, Elvis, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I even had President Nixon when he wasn't in office flying from Hawaii to China. Willie Nelson. Uh, Willie Nelson was traveling from, uh, I believe it was Australia or, yeah, Australia back to uh, Los Angeles. And it was the middle of the night and I was sitting in the galley and I was fixing myself my own oatmeal that I carry with me. And Willie Nelson came on board and, um, I mean, walked into the uh, galley and said, what are you eating? And I said, oatmeal. And he said, may I have some? And of course I wasn't gonna say no. I said, yes, certainly. And so I fixed him my own oatmeal uh, and gave it to him. So, you know, we had celebrities, um, many, many celebrities. After I had flown nine months uh, with Continental, I had the opportunity to sign up uh, for the military flights, transporting our troops in and out of Vietnam. And uh, after I came off probation, I signed up. The company only wanted us to sign up for a year. I ended up uh, signing up for two years. And flying over there was all up and down the west coast to hawaii to the philippines we flew all over the pacific and uh, our captains had the uh, credit card to buy the fuel but sometimes when we landed in an unscheduled country uh, sometimes we had to pull our cash together because they only wanted uh, cash to pay for our departure fees so in doing those flights and uh Flying in and out of the war zones uh, really was not easy for us crew members. Uh, we loved our soldiers. They meant a lot to us. And we took really good care taking them over. And uh, we also took really extra good care of them bringing them back. But uh, our lives were changed in going through that experience. 
But then when I returned back to domestic, um, the lifestyle that I'd been living out, flying the military flights uh, with a lot of drinking and a lot of romances, we were either dating our pilots or we were dating all the soldiers at all the officers' clubs and uh, carried on a lifestyle of a single gal. As you know, we had to be single. Uh, you could not be me uh, married in those days. And uh, you had to be a certain height, certain weight. And uh, we all kind of fit into that part for many, many years until the uh, regulations uh, changed. I had a wonderful career, and I always encourage the young people to go ahead and get involved with aviation. Um, even though it's changed, uh, it's not even the same as it used to be. But today's technology and transportation, it's a way of life, and, uh, and it's still a good career. So I would always encourage people, um, if you have a desire uh, to live on an airplane and serve people, then you're at the right place. To end, we go from the cabin to the cockpit to meet Sharon Eminger Day. Captain Day joined First Officer Karen Squires and Flight Attendant Trude Asada to navigate a short SD-330 aircraft from Honolulu to Molokai. The flight marked the first all-female flight crew in the United States for a commercial airline, while Day was also recognised as the first female pilot for Hawaiian Airlines. Her passion for flying is now shared by the 6,556 American women piloting the skies in commercial jets. Monocle spoke to Captain Day about the most memorable moments of her flights across the islands of Hawaii and being a trailblazing woman in what was a very male industry when she joined. When they hired me, they, it was November 1st, 1978. And so I was put through the ground school kind of on my own. I just kept my mouth shut and stayed really low profile. They were the Shorts 330s made by Shorts Brothers in Ireland that the company was buying. And then I was on the ferry crew to go pick up the first Shorts in Ireland. And so three of us went to Northern Ireland and um, test flew the airplane and flew it around the world to deliver it to Hawaiian. Incredible. And as you said, it was a bit of a, an old man's club at that point. What was it about aviation that first drew you to want to fly planes? Oh, well, that's a story. It turns out, and I didn't know all of this at the beginning, but my grandmother was learning to fly when she was carrying my father. And my grandfather owned an airplane. This was in the 20s. And so he was obviously an enthusiast. And then um, my dad got his private license when I was, after I was here. <laughs> I flew with him as, as a teenager. He flew just small single-engine airplanes. On my mom's side, my grandfather was part of the Cleveland Air Races crew, um, which was kind of a thing back in the 30s. So little did I know, I was destined. I, I didn't have any choice, but I really loved it. I didn't learn to fly myself until I moved to Honolulu in the 72 and um, had the opportunity to learn to fly then and just kept going because I love it. So yeah. it's really in your blood then. 
<laughs> no kidding. I, I didn't know it at the time, but I just really loved it. So. <laughs> and um, you captained the first all-female flight crew in the USA. How did that come around, and what was that journey like? That was amazing. That just happened. I was just scheduled for a flight, and actually the chief pilot met us and said, oh, by the way, there'll be some cameras and stuff for your flight to get here a little early, would you? <laughs> so, so there there were the TV cameras, and um, actually the president of the company was there, Mr. Magoon at the time, and um, it just got scheduled, and I, we didn't know what was going to happen. We just showed up to fly. But how did it feel knowing that you were, if you didn't know that you were doing it before, when you were actually on board and you knew that this is an all-female flight? I mean, that's quite a pivotal moment for women in aviation, surely. Oh, absolutely. But you know you know how these things go. Once you get that realization, then you go, okay, down to business. And we just do our job. We do what we need to do. So you can't stay in that moment of, oh my gosh, look at what we're doing. You can't stay there. You've got to get down to business and do what you do. So that's what we did. It was exciting for me, that's for sure. I, I loved it. It was magical. Do you remember the the thrill of the first few times that you that you flew a plane on your own? Oh my gosh! Every time you take off, you remember it. It's the best. You leap into the sky and you're free. It's it's wonderful. I love it. Flying is awesome. Just awesome. We would sometimes, if I was sitting at the end of the runway watching one of our company land or take off, we would look at each other and go, "Can you believe it takes to do this?" Oh my gosh. But don't tell anybody because it's a secret. It's very cool. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Golden Age of Aviation with Breitling. To find out more about the programme, you can head to monocle.com or subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud and all your other favourite audio sources. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and I'm Chloe Potter. Join us again in two weeks' time, but until then, wherever you are and wherever you're headed, bon voyage. <laughs>